morning, church, as we remain standing a moment, let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your lively word. And I just, I just give you praise, God, that you come to set us free through your gospel. And so please empower us this morning. If any of us has come in tired or under attack or, or feeling in any way uh, under pressure or stretched in our lives, please refresh us this morning as we sit under your word and gather around your table. Thank you, Lord, for the good news. Amen. Let's be seated. So as, as Ben said in, in that brilliant sort of pre-sermon, we are looking at what the gospel does, and we're looking at what power the gospel actually has. And never will this power be more visible than when we have run out of our own. And if you've been going through something in your life, and perhaps this has been the first big thing or, or the one thing that you've, you've come up against and been truly powerless to resolve, and all your regular go-to techniques have, have let you down, you don't know what to do, this morning what I say to you is be encouraged. This could be the very day where the gospel goes to work in your life. This might be the day where, where the power of the good news is most on display. Let's turn together to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul begins 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, with a story of distress, one of the most vulnerable images that he could possibly employ. He says, verse 17, we were torn away from you. The Greek word or phrase in English, torn away, uh, means that it's against his will that he's not there. And the Greek word actually is the same word that they would use for orphanages or orphaned, to be orphaned. So it's, it's difficult to imagine a more powerless image that Paul could have employed than, than this idea of being without a, a protector or, or without a provider. And in using this orphan image, it fits with a theme that he's been doing for the last few weeks as, as we've read through the book. You know, he said he felt like a mother a couple of weeks ago, then a father, now a child, and then he addresses them as brothers and as sisters. And so what he's saying with these mixed metaphors is that the church is his family, and he's not there. And it is against his will that he's not there, and he is powerless to do anything about that. He has no power to change his situation. It's not for want of effort, and it is not for lack of will. He says, he has endeavored eagerly. It means worked hard with as much speed and as much strength as he can muster. And he's done this, he says, with much desire. Weird word to have chosen. It's a word the Bible usually translates lust. A deep craving in his heart to be there. He feels like I feel. I want to see my mum and I want to see my dad. And I want to drink a pint of warm otter ale. I'm not going to tell you in what order I'd like to do those things. Though I do know there is a pub that serves it between the airport and their house. Paul. <laughs> and I'll see you there, Mum and Dad. Paul, uh, <laughs> Paul is just powerless to do anything about it. Powerless is powerless. I thought I'd do that joke last night, and I, I decided to ditch it. thought I'd try it this morning on the internet. 
Not very funny. Powerless is powerless to do anything about this. Uh, and next, yeah, yeah, so you get it. Thank you. Uh, I'm learning. What I used to do is I used to do a bad joke three times a weekend, and then at the end of the three attempts go, yeah, that actually was a bad joke. I've reduced it now to just one uh, a weekend if it bombs. Paul has no power to do anything about his situation at all. He craves to be there. He's done everything in his power to get there. He is being kept away from there. So what he does is he writes this letter and he exposes the one behind it all. Verse 18, Satan. Now it is popular to posit the thesis that Satan is not real. And uh, I've heard it said in, in academic circles mostly... Uh, mostly academic circles from the late 1970s, that Satan is just a metaphor for evil. He's a caricature, a cartoon, a sort of personification of evil to allow simple folk to grasp the concept of badness. But we don't need to make up ideas like this, let alone believe them. What we need to do is base our beliefs in Scripture, and Paul is very clear Satan is indeed real, and Satan is imbued with great power. In the next book, 2 Thessalonians, he describes Satan as the evil one. 2 Corinthians, he calls him the god of this age. In Ephesians, he calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In our gospel reading, Christ rebukes Satan in an interaction with him. In our baptism, which we will have at 11 o'clock, we will renounce Satan as a body. And so Satan is real, very real indeed, and he has power that is way beyond our own. And if you just jump with me ahead a little bit to chapter 3, verse 5, we're sort of straddling those chapters today, chapter 3, 5, we'll see what Satan does with his power. Verse 5, this is Paul still writing, he says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The tempter tempts. That's what he does. And Paul's worried that he's wasted his time. And you know what it's like when you're not somewhere. It just makes it more worrisome, doesn't it? When you can't see what's really going on there, you start to imagine uh, what might be going on in, in that town. And he's concerned. Paul is worried that that same enemy that had messed with him and driven him away and was keeping him away, was now dragging away the people that he had been leading to Christ. Now, at this point, you might be with me. You might be saying, okay, I know this. I, I know I accept that I have no power. I accept that Satan is real, that he has a power way beyond my own. I accept that he will use that power against me. And so what I'm going to do, I'd, I'd better just kind of keep my head down. And if, and if I just keep a low enough profile and don't aggravate him or kind of get on his radar, then maybe he'll leave me alone. <laughs> maybe that's a strategy you've thought about. But uh, one of Ben's friends told us a story the other day uh, when he was over. And uh, Kat and I, we both heard this story. And we said to each other, that'll preach. So I'm going to share it with you. You may well have heard one like it, uh, but uh, Ben's friend says this is a family member. Maybe it's doing the rounds, who knows what. But uh, a man, he claims his uncle, bought a pet snake. And uh, it was a, a type, a rare type of python. 
And uh, I looked it up to help you picture it. Uh, Wikipedia describes this particular breed as, quote, a stocky snake. So it's a, it's a bit of a fella, this snake. And uh, the guy noticed that the snake was losing weight quite rapidly. And so after several weeks of you know, being concerned about the snake and watching this snake get thinner and thinner and thinner, he took the snake to the vet, and the vet ran various tests on the snake, found nothing wrong at all, and just as they were leaving, the vet stopped him and said, just one more thing. Can you tell me, where does the snake sleep? And the guy said, well, it sleeps in the bed next to me. Many people sleep with their pets. This guy slept with his pet snake. And the vet said, well, I think I know what the problem is. While you sleep, it's sizing you up. And it's emptying his stomach, trying to figure out how it can fit you inside. You can't be nice to a snake and turn it into a cat. It's a snake. The snake snacks. It's what snakes do. They sneak and they snack. Peter says he prowls around. The Bible, I just love how, the, we don't do this in the West, I love how the Bible just mixes metaphors. A prowling snake. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And uh, I wanted to say to you, if all hell is breaking loose in your life right now, we know the one who is behind it. That the snake sneaks, the lion prowls. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, I thought this was church. Could we talk about God, please, <laughs> instead of the other guy? And uh, what about God? I accept that, that my powers are limited. I accept there are some things beyond my control. I accept that Satan is real, that he is imbued with great power, and that he uses that power against me. And uh, I accept that he does these things because of who he is, and that I can't keep him happy or placate him in any way, or get myself off his radar, or make him go away. But what about God? Tell me something about him. And if I'm doing what God wants, I'm a good guy, Satan will surely leave me alone, right? Well, let's look back to verses 15 and 16 from uh, the previous passage. 1 Thessalonians 2, 15, 16. Uh, and you'll see it just doesn't work that way. Paul, he says, has been hindered and driven out of his church. And that simply tells us that even working for the Lord does not render you immune from the attacks of the enemy. It does not insulate you from harm. But then come three encouragements, and they come in rapid succession. Uh, three encouragements for us. And the first is that these things are common. These attacks are entirely common. If you're suffering, Satan wants you to believe that your situation is unique. He wants you to believe that there is some special shame to what's happening to you. And that this cataclysm is never going to happen to anyone else. He wants you to look around, particularly on a Sunday morning, and say, well, they all seem to be doing fine. There's real shame in my situation. I'm unique. And Satan wants you to believe that you are alone. So Paul says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ 
to establish and exhort you in your faith, to encourage you. First encouragement, really simple, God gives you people. God gives you other believers when you're under attack. People who know what it is to have no power of their own, but also who know what it is to have the power of God. He gives you a people of power. And he sends Timothy, it says here, to establish them that no one be moved by these afflictions. Before we move on from this little verse, I want to just really dig into those physical metaphors and images that Paul uses so we can really picture exactly what it is that he's saying. Uh, To establish that no one be moved in these afflictions. To establish, it means to affix or to set firm. And uh, what might help us, uh, those of us in the room, is if you picture one of those bright orange Home Depot buckets that you fill full of concrete and then you put in the ground and you set a, a post or something into it. Imagine, uh, for example, you had a beautiful brand new Christchurch Lane sign, uh, for example, at the end of your driveway, and it had been set firmly, a wooden post set firmly into a, a foundation, affixed within it. The gospel, like that, has the power to set you firm, to affix you into something you know, rooted and grounded and that has strength, so that you can withstand what the enemy does, set firm. That means you can't be moved. Uh, To move, it it means actually uh, to shake or to waggle. (laughs) It's it's the same word that the Greeks use to describe uh, what a dog's tail does when it's pleased to see you, to waggle. That's all it is. And, uh, you know, if you're not correctly affixed, Satan will just come and shake you and waggle you until you come loose. Don't look at the Christchurch Lane sign. Go and look at my mailbox and see that it, uh, you know, it's been doing what the Paschal Candle's been doing, you know, just sort of gradually falling over. It, 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 you know, when the wind blows, it shakes. When, when my neighbor thinks it's fun to, like, shake it just for fun, it gets even more loose because it's not properly affixed. And Satan knows if you're not properly affixed, all he needs to do is keep shaking until you come loose and then you fall over. That's the image that Paul is using for us. So, be set firm, be affixed. And then uh, he says that Satan also afflicts. And that word afflict, it means to press down. It means to, to pressurize. So now we have this image of shaking and waggling and and jostling combined with this secondary image of of pressing and pushing and shoving and uh, it derives its its image from the wine press or the olive press where a lid is slowly screwed down under mechanical pressure to squeeze out whatever is within. There's these two images of shaking and and of pressure. And here we are in a different culture with a different language. And we're still using these same two images, are we not? You know, something bad happens to you. Something unexpected comes along. And we say, you know, I was shaken by that thing. Or, or there's some difficulty in your life and you've been wrestling against it. And we say, you know, I, I just felt under pressure. How are you feeling? I've been really feeling under pressure in recent weeks to perform. I just really sense this growing pressure that we've, we've got to get the kids in. I've got to get this thing done. I've got to achieve this thing. What if this doesn't happen? And here we are. 
in a different culture with these very same images. And what Paul is saying to you is, if you are feeling shaken, and if you are feeling under pressure, the people of God are sent to proclaim the good news which sets you firm so that you can withstand these things. And if we are built upon a firm foundation, set within that foundation is what Paul calls faith. Not an abstract idea. Not a set of propositions to which we ascribe. Some sort of hypothesis. Faith is an active thing. It it actually is the word trust, is a better English translation. And, And if you dig through the little concordance, you'll see that it describes an action that we do together. Faith is a relationship that we have with God. That is what we have. An attachment to the power of God together as one body of believers. God sends believers into your life to encourage you when you're under attack. Second encouragement. Verse 3. For you yourselves know, and that's emphatic, because he could have just said you. So he senses that they're kind of, he's losing them, so we'll, we'll double up. You yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, pressure, just as it has come to pass. Affliction, like temptation, is a sign that the enemy is real. And if it's happening to you, if you're being attacked, it's a sign that you're worth attacking. Satan is actually a bit of a fussy eater. He chooses his snacks carefully. And uh, Paul had pre-warned them that if they were to grow in their faith, indeed, they might experience greater attack. And if they relied more on the power of the gospel, they might well come up against more of the power of the enemy. And this is an enemy with far greater power than they have, which leads to the third encouragement, far less power than God has. God and Satan are not of equal power. They're not equal opposites. They're not a yin and a yang of equal and opposite measure. Many of us, uh, anyone really that's been raised in the West since the 1960s, has grown up with these cartoons where there's goodies and baddies. Optimus Prime and and, uh, Megatron, it's Skeletor and He-Man or Hordak and She-Ra or, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the force and the dark side and, and, and it's Jedi. You know, we, we, we have been enculturated in this sense that there are goodies and baddies of equal and opposite power. And so when we read scripture, we often read it through our own secular Western humanistic lens and we say, oh, okay, right, goodies and baddies, they're in a fight. And we wonder who's going to win. We're, we're like, oh, you know, this, the tension in all of these plots of all of these cartoons that all of our kids and some of us have watched It was always, you know, there's goodies and baddies, and for 20 minutes we're going to watch them fight and find out who wins, and we hope it's the good guys. Maybe this episode, the bad guys get the upper hand, but we hope that the last one in the series, maybe the good guys can do it unless there's a season two. This is not that. These are not two great titans in a boxing ring with equal odds and place your bets. We are not expected to wonder who might win. God has already won. Here's the third encouragement. He has won already. The contest is over. The fight is not, but the contest is. I watched a classic boxing match the other day. 
It was uh, James Butler Jr. versus Richard Grant, 2001. It was a, a charity match after September uh, the 11th. And uh, at the, in the match, Grant won. And after the final bell and the gloves had come off and the winner had been announced, Butler ran up to Grant, bare knuckle, and sucker punched him in the face and knocked him out. And it changed nothing <laughs> official. The referee didn't say, oh, well, uh, fair enough. We better take the belt off you, mate, because you're on the floor and give it to the bad guy. What happened, actually, is they called the police. And uh, they, they, they sent him. He got, he got four months in Rikers Island. Then he came out, did a murder, and got 21 years. And they're quite right, too. The enemy is powerful, and he is dangerous, and he fights unfair, but he has lost already. The third encouragement is that the victory bell has rung. The victory of Christ is secure. And Paul says in verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown? I think he writes epistles like I write sermons. Like, oh man, I want to say three things. So we'll give you them all. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Oh, he's boasting you. He's proud of you, church. And he's proud of who you are in Christ. He says, Jesus is Lord. It's a phrase that he repeats throughout this book, and in fact, many of his books, to remind us who has won, who has ultimate power in this scenario. It is the Lord. And the Lord is to return, not as a protagonist, but as a judge crown, the Stephanos, was the laurel wreath that was given to athletes. The victor in the games was given a crown. And although Christ has won, he has given his crown to you. All of that weakness, all of that temptation, all of that pressure, all of that shaking, all of that attack, and Christ and compassion looks at us in all of our sin, in all of our weakness, and he crowns us with glory and with victory and with strength. Let's give thanks. Amen.